Hey, everybody. Today I have Megan Ramos on the podcast, and this is quite a privilege because she is really a treasure trove of information. In case you're not familiar, Megan Ramos has been working with Dr. Jason Fung for the last many years. They've treated many, many patients using fasting as the primary tool or primary treatment, and they've seen incredible results. So Megan describes a lot of those details to us today on the program, including what kind of results they've seen with patients having diabetes or high blood pressure, obesity, polycystic ovary syndrome, even a lot of improvements in mental health in their patients. And she gives us kind of a realistic perspective about what the timetables would be, how much fasting you would have to do if you have one of these kind of conditions. So it's really quite the detailed explanation. And I think it's some really valuable information if you have any of those types of health issues, or even if you're just trying to prevent those types of health issues. Megan also gives us some great tips about how to fast in the context of a family setting. If you're trying to use fasting, but you're not sure how to do it because you have kids and you have to make dinner and all these things. So she, ta- she gives some really valuable tips about that. And she also gives some of her top tips for beginners, some of the best tips for people just starting out. So I really think this is quite the incredible episode because Megan provides so much valuable information. Now, I'll warn you that the audio quality from Megan's voice is not quite as good as maybe what you're used to hearing on this podcast, but it's still pretty easy to understand, so I think it's definitely worth it to take the time and listen to what she has to say. So let's go ahead and get into it. I hope you enjoy the episode. Megan Ramos, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, Thanks for having me on, Ben. I appreciate it. Yeah, so this is kind of exciting because the very first podcast I ever listened to related to fasting was back in 2017, near the beginning of the year. And I was doing, it was the first time I ever did a multi-day fast. And so I was interested in fasting. I was like, I wonder if there's any info out there. And so I looked it up (laughs) and I found Fasting Talk and it had just started. It had basically just started. And so it was like one of the first, probably one of the first ever fasting podcasts that existed. And then it had just fairly started. So I listened yeah. to your story and Dr. Fung's story and Jimmy Moore's story and kind of went from there. But so you were on one of the first podcasts I ever listened to about this kind of stuff. And then since then, of course, I've heard you on other podcasts like the Obesity po- Obesity Code podcast that you guys did for a while. And then more recently, you've got your own podcast, the Fasting Method podcast, right? That started pretty recently. Yeah, so. that was wild and kind of on uh unplanned we just uh we just said all right we're we're doing this <laughs> one day and then we just started recording to see if we liked it and i think so far so good yeah so you guys kind of just dived in huh or dove in or whatever the correct grammar is without <laughs> without too much preparation um yeah so i i listened to the intro so far and and so i have an idea like what you're doing with that i think it'll be a really good resource for especially for beginners because you're going to be answering a lot of beginner questions on like half of your episodes, it sounds like it would be like just Q&A kind of stuff. So I'm sure that'll be really useful. Um, yeah. So back in 2017 is when I first heard you and then I read your book, Life in the Fasting Lane, you know, that you co-authored, of course, um, and found a lot of useful info in there. And then I've just like learned a lot from you over the years. So I think it's a good opportunity to ask you some of these kind of questions that I get a lot and so that some of the listeners to this podcast can also pick up on. And and then, of course, they can go listen to your podcast as well and get some more info that way. But uh, I've heard your story several times, but maybe some of our listeners haven't. So maybe you can give us kind of the, uh, uh, I guess, at least a little taste, um, a short-ish version sure. of, of your background. And 
Yeah. I'll, I'll give you the the cold notes um, version. <laughs> uh, <laughs> as a kid, I I grew up on sort of fast food. My parents were busy. My mom was pretty sick growing up, so you know Monday was pizza night, Tuesday was Chinese food. Yeah, it, it was what it what it was. Once in a while, I'd have a home cooked meal, um, but I was always really skinny to the eye. But I had these diseases of obesity, and nobody could really figure them out. So at 12, I was diagnosed with fatty liver, and 14, I was diagnosed with PCOS. But the specialist told my parents, hey, you know, don't worry, she's skinny. I was actually underweight, but according to the BMI scale. So they said she'll just grow out of it. Like She's not at high risk for any gnarly complications and uh, all of that kind of jazz. And then as I got older and the PCOS didn't seem to go away, it didn't get worse. And, you know, that's when conversations about, hey, maybe you want to freeze your eggs, you know, if, if you've got the resources to do so because of the oh, fertility wow. and whatnot. So, I, you know, I had sort of my this whole weird health metabolic syndrome as a kid, but I was quote unquote very underweight. So uh, people just kind of wrote me off and she'll grow out of it hopefully and maybe just do your due diligence around certain things just in case um but i became really interested in preventative medicine around the same time because my mom had this like disastrous medical history and i actually got fortunate uh, one of my father's friends uh, had kids that wanted to study law and i wanted to study medicine so they swapped kids um so my dad's friend's kids went to study law at his firm and i went to uh, this guy's medical practice, um, which is a kidney clinic, a nephrology group. And they did a lot of prospective research and lifestyle intervention. And I just love that because there was this whole preventative medicine aspect to it that I just saw was missing even from a young age. So I started working at that clinic at 15 and which was really passionate about the whole preventative uh, interventions that they were doing and and got you know pretty deep into the research projects going on there and I fell in love with it and this desire to try to slow down the progression of disease um, so I hung out there <laughs> I they just kept willing to employ me and I just never left uh, and I stuck it out there throughout uh, throughout university uh, and then continued to work there afterwards and sort of there was this point in my mid-20s where my own health journey and my professional journey kind of hit head on. Professionally, I got like super burned out from watching all of these people I was trying to help with these lifestyle interventions like the Canadian Food Guide just get worse and worse and worse. And the reason why was their diabetes was just becoming rampant. They were gaining weight and it was causing kidney disease. And there was nothing you could do about that kidney disease unless you could treat the diabetes. And we're told, hey, it's a chronic progressive condition. You're just going to end up dying from it, complications related from it. So I thought to myself, oh, maybe I did the wrong thing. Like maybe I should have gone to law school. And I started to take some time off and reevaluate what I was going to do with my life. And simultaneously, I was like, oh my gosh, okay, you got this metabolic illness uh, or illnesses and you um, have this horrendous family history. And I had some cardiac arrhythmias I was born with and had to have surgery for and all that jazz. So I'm like, are right, you taking time off to figure out your career, take time off to figure out your health and uh, started doing all of the due diligence, uh, trainer, food guide, um, and ended up gaining a lot of weight and being diagnosed mm -hmm. with type 2 diabetes. 
Um, so fortunately, a colleague of mine, Jason Fong, he's a medical doctor in nephrology, is his specialty, and he was getting really frustrated career-wise like I was. He wasn't that much older than me, and it was just so heartbreaking watching all these patients die from diabetes. And uh, mm-hmm. he had uh, started investigating fasting, talked me into fasting, and you know, six months later, lost all the weight, had no more metabolic diseases, uh, including type 2 diabetes, and the rest is, is kind of history now. Wow. Yeah. So it's quite a story. And of course, you know, if people want to hear kind of a longer version of your story. I'm sure they can find that at some point on your your podcast that you're doing. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting how you said, like, you know, working with this guy at this clinic, you know, and I get, maybe you were referring to Dr. Fung there where you mentioned that at the oh. beginning. But yeah, no, no, I, I just saying that's kind of funny because, of course, he's become well known and, and all that through the books and everything that he's written. <laughs> Um, but from, if I'm, if I'm understanding correctly, you kind of said that when you had these health issues, you, uh, you went and did all the things that was kind of the traditional advice and it got worse, (laughs) more or less. Um, and then you, and then eventually you, uh, decided to try some fasting and and it got better. It's kind of, kind of, sort of. Yeah. I, I went against the grain. I don't know why I thought, you know, I had just gotten like burnt out from work watching people just get worse from all of these interventions follow the Canadian food guide eat 10 times a day (laughs) work out with a trainer I don't know why I thought that would be different for me you know insanity is doing the same thing over again and expecting different results and um it I just I got the same results as the patients were getting but fortunately I was younger and you know, while I had disease, it was not as progressed as so many of the patients. So I was really able Mm -hmm. to get a hold of it, you know, with with fasting and and turn things around. Yeah, for sure. So maybe some of the advice that we get from the establishment is good, like, you know, working out is good. But then, like you said, eating 10 times a day, like that advice that we've, we've all probably heard over the years that you need to eat small, frequent meals or eat all the time or all these different things like that. So so uh, I heard you say recently um, in on your podcast that uh, that you, as a team or whatever, have treated or interacted with over twenty thousand patients. Um, so I thought that was yeah. that was pretty wild. That's pretty cool. So I thought I'd ask, based on all that experience, um, mm-hmm. what what kind of results? No, no. Of course, I, my understanding is that it's a. F- the majority of the time you're using fasting is at least one of the tools that you're using with these people. Um, So with all that experience with fasting and all these different patients, what kind of results have you seen, at least big picture wise? um, What kind of results have you seen with things like diabetes and high blood pressure and even obesity? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we've had the privilege in clinic and online and, and through our various different programs to have helped so many people worldwide. And it's just amazing. Like in the clinic, our initial pilot of people, they were off insulin in less than a month. Like that's just wild. Like some of these people at that point had been on insulin longer than I had been alive. So I was in my, my uh, late 20s, early 30s at the time. And it was just wild. Like they're just stopping it and they're not needing it anymore. 
four four weeks in, one month in, you know, to fasting. And we're not talking crazy fasting. Like they weren't fasting for the entire month. We're talking just alternate <laughs> daily fasting. Yeah. Uh, and then so 30 years of insulin, like out the window, never needed again. And then, you know, six months, most people are off of all their diabetic medication. Usually between that first month and that six month, they, there's blood pressure medications that are dropped. Because we we so blame the salt for what the sugar did, and it's actually mm-hmm. the insulin being so elevated that is causing the, the high blood pressure, the hypertension. So all of a sudden, patients whose blood sugar levels or or their blood pressure levels are like two hundred over one hundred and ten are like coming down into normal ranges, and it's just wild. Like Jason and I had this one patient in the clinic. 200 and something over 110 there were no more medications to give this guy and suddenly you know within a few months he's starting to get normal blood pressure readings we're all confused (laughs) so it was just wild like after years of just having these crazy crazy blood pressure readings so it's just amazing like i'd say six months into an alternate daily fasting regimen where you're doing the the true alternate daily fasting for a good 80 to 90 percent of that time because holidays vacations whatnot do happen you can do so much like we we can get most people off of all of their diabetic medications they can reduce in many cases a lot of their blood pressure medications a lot of their statins that they're on and then the blood or cholesterol medications can come off um the weight loss is is pretty incredible it's just amazing to see consistent weight loss. Now, at the start of anyone's weight loss journey, they're going to lose more because they're dumping more water. But we're seeing people, you know, lose the same amount of weight, you know, depending on their fasting protocol, it's usually one and a half to two pounds a week. And we're seeing that consistently straight for months, uh, which is wild. So, you know, at the end of six months, we're looking at a tremendous amount of weight being lost. And which what is really wild, usually sort of about that six month point is there some sort of holiday uh there's either summer vacation or the december holidays and people think oh here we go you know we're going to gain all that weight back and so they'll they would come into the clinic or come into a virtual appointment after being away at their cottage or cabin or traveling to different resorts in the summer or after Christmas feast, and they say, here comes the weight, and the weight <laughs> doesn't come back on, like they're the same pre-holiday weight. And they're like, oh my goodness, like it's so difficult to gain weight. And that, like everybody has a chuckle, you know, so at, sort of at the six month mark is where we just see the fatty liver reverse. So fatty liver disease is one of the most com- like biggest contributors to mortality rates in, in North America. It's like fatty liver disease is gone. Right now, if you listen to any health officials, they'll tell you there's no treatment for fatty liver disease. And med, like pharmaceutical attempts just keep failing in trials. Mm-hmm. So there's no actual medication out there for it. But we can eradicate, you know, fatty liver disease in six months. In six months, you know, women who have not had regular menstrual cycles due to PCOS are suddenly having consistent regular cycles. I had one young woman, 21 years old, she hadn't had a cycle 
in over two and a half years, three months in the fasting, she gets a cycle and then she's getting it consistently month in and month out. So, you know, we, we joke, uh, Dr. Nadia Pettiguana on our team, she's our, our hormonal health expert. Um, we call her our baby whisperer, you know, and <laughs> I, you're, you need to exercise cautious because she just totally obliterates, you know, PCOS with the strategies that she implements. Uh, and then there's so many other great benefits of fasting that we never really expected to happen. Um, anxiety, depression, like people that are really struggling with these chronic um, sort of mental health issues, this just going away. I was someone who always struggled with generalized anxiety disorder, but you know, with fast, everything's clear, you know, uh, ADHD on that note, too, uh, even myself, like I, I used to pop Adderall and Biodance just to sort of get through daily life. Um, as prescribed by my doctor, I had okay. no issues <laughs> with it, but like I needed it, it was a crutch. And then mm -hmm. suddenly I'm fasting and I'm so busy with work and I'm able to catch up on life for the first time in what felt like a hundred years. And I just didn't have time to go to the doctor to renew my prescription. And there I was, you know, blasting away through really complicated things without needing ADHD medication. And I couldn't even do really interesting things that I enjoyed without it in the past because I didn't have that ability to focus. I had so much carb brain all of the time that there was no mental clarity and all of that came back with fasting. Um, so we hear all of these, you know, incredible things. Uh, and it, it's so great, you know, people, they get freedom from food, they get control back of their metabolic health, they get to tackle these crippling issues like anxiety and depression, uh, infertility, you know, all of these amazing benefits. Uh, that we've seen through fasting. Wow. Yeah. So there's so much there, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, kind of to summarize, there's just a huge list of health benefits. And of course, I'm sure you see this and, and I've seen that like most of the time when you bring up fasting, like people's first reaction is like, how much weight can I lose? Um, it's like the, unless they're coming to you because they have diabetes or something. So, but if you're just kind of talking about it casually outside of the medical setting, like people are mostly focused on weight loss, but just looking at like the list of all the stuff that you just, you know, kind of enumerated there about diabetes, getting off insulin, um, blood pressure coming down, you know, losing weight, having an easier time keeping it off, PCOS improving. I'm sure the list goes on to some degree because, you know, it, people are correcting some of the underlying kind of root cause problems that are contributing to a lot of these health issues. And of course, one of those is the insulin resistance or excess insulin levels, um, which I've talked about on some of my previous episodes and talked about the the book called Why We Get Sick that Dr. Ben Bickman wrote fairly recently, which is all about insulin resistance and how it's kind of a a significant root cause of many of these these health issues. But health issues. But but yeah, that's really quite an amazing um kind of experience or string of experiences or whole group of, of experiences that you've had uh, with seeing so much improvement. So I thought that was interesting what you said about mental health, because I I certainly can relate to what you said about mental clarity while fasting and stuff like that. But um, to me, when I talk about, oh, people can probably get some improvement in depression or anxiety, to me, it's kind of theoretical because I haven't like really seen it, you know, up close, so to speak. But uh, can you elaborate just a little bit more on like what you've kind of observed in terms of mental health issues with your patients? 
It's um, fasting is a really great tool. First of all, so many of these medications that people use to help them. Uh, well, there's 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 a lot of controversy around them, but in mm -hmm. general, they do co contribute to insulin resistance. So we've actually collaborated with a team in, in Toronto for with a group of patients with schizophrenia because the primary medication that they would be on would cause extreme weight gain, extreme insulin resistance, diabetes, and then there's need for more medication and medication compliance already isn't that high. Uh, and then to change the diet of these individuals uh, can be very complex in nature. But fasting, you can make into a game. Fasting simplifies things um, for for many individuals, and therefore it's sustainable. So we've been able to help so many of these individuals. You know, first and foremost, who are on these medications, sort of be able to counteract the negative side effects in terms of insulin resistance and uh, weight gain. So just in general, it's positive for that. But there's just been patient after patient or individual in our community saying, you know, this debilitating anxiety, this, you know, seasonal depression, all of it is just gone. It's not there anymore. They don't have it weighing on them. They're able to come off of these medications that were perhaps making them feel a little bit numb and they're able to feel things the way that they wanted to feel them again and have these experiences, but without the struggles anymore and you know we attribute that to a few factors you know um many people don't realize this but our gut is like our second brain and so much of or so many of our neurotransmitters are largely manufactured in our gut so mm -hmm. when we're eating sort of the standard north american diet and we're eating lots of this refined and processed fake foods and then we're just eating them all at the time i mean that really damages our gut and so we're, we're constantly, you know, sort of giving our, our second brain, you know, a punch with and just beating it up, you know, nonstop throughout the day. And that has a profound impact on us. And then when we fast, we're actually giving the gut a chance to heal. You know, we're first of all giving the whole digestive tract a big break. Um, but there's actually sort of these quote unquote fasting microbes that have that are produced in a fasted state that just help tidy things up and help you get rid of some of the bad bacteria and get some of the good bacteria and just allow for the integrity of the gut to repair itself from having that rest. Um, we tend to end up with these little leaks in our gut and we don't end up absorbing nutrients very well or food doesn't get properly digested. So the way it ends up leaking kind of out of our gut in this uh, substance that's toxic and we have this immune response to it so we actually get we allow the gut to actually heal itself we call it leaky gut syndrome and it gets a chance to heal and then this way you know we don't leak out stuff that's potentially toxic and we get to absorb nutrients that are much better and you know so many people you know too that are battling anxiety and depression there's nutrient deficiencies but we're not seeing that happen anymore because we're allowing the gut to heal and we're able to absorb nutrients much better. And then most people who do fast do some sort of complementary real whole food approach, whether it's low carb or paleo or ketogenic or carnivore is popular. Um, but there are people that do a real whole food base that's more plant style and, and do well too, depending on their um 
their own body's physiology, what's working best for them. And that just further enhances uh, the restoration of the, of the gut as well. So we're really, you know, more fasting and we're making positive changes with our diets. You know, we're allowing that second brain to heal and to start to function optimally and our body to get some of these awesome neurotransmitters that maybe haven't been produced uh, or produced properly or in the right quantities or ratios. And it gives us a chance to really allow healing to happen. Yeah, wow. So I, I was already going to say perhaps that it's probably multifactorial, but then you covered a lot of the the stuff I was kind of thinking about. So you've got the medication, some of the mental health or psychiatric medications can cause weight gain or cause insulin resistance. Um, and then you've got, well, you know, you know, all that stuff with the gut, if it's inflamed and if, you know, bacteria is leaking out of the intestines because of certain types of food people are eating or just other general health issues, um, that has a bunch of effects, general inflammation and things. There's the, uh, the flora or the bacteria, um, that live inside our gut that whatever, anything that affects them kind of affects our mental health and our overall health indirectly. And so there's all these different things. Um, so there is a lot that goes into it. And and maybe when people start moving in the right direction, they probably have a little more sense of control as well. And that just kind of helps, you know, with general mental health and anxiety and things like that, I think. And in some cases, yeah. because they drop off some weight, maybe they're able to exercise more and then that starts having some positive benefits. So there's, there's probably a whole bunch of things that go into it. But yeah, that's, that's pretty cool to hear. Um, and then uh, it reminds me of Dr. Georgia, is it Edie or Ede? Uh, Georgia Ede. She's, she's oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, she's done some lectures about specific dietary components that can kind of affect mental health. So it's not really about fasting, but it's related because it might have some of the same effects indirectly in terms of the specific types of food that might be better to avoid because they cause certain types of inflammation in the gut and in general and, and so forth. So that's pretty cool. So, um, so you talked about diabetes and you talked about patients getting off of insulin. And I was going to ask, well, first of all, like some people are skeptical if you can quote unquote reverse diabetes, just because for many years it was considered irreversible, progressive, and there's nothing you can do about it. I think you've already kind of told us and I mean, maybe there are some listeners who just aren't as familiar and don't really know, but you've kind of, from what you've already explained, it's pretty clear that yes, you know, you can get people off insulin and make a lot of changes. I mean, how would you put in a nutshell, like how consistently are you able to see quote unquote reversal? And what does that kind of mean in your, in your opinion? Like what would be the definition of diabetes reversal? Yeah. So definition would be that if you were to have something, say a refined and processed sugar of sorts, like a piece of cake, that you would have a normal glucose response and a normal insulin response to having that piece of cake. So we have, most people are, there, there's something called the craft test, which sort of measures the insulin response. That's very good, but not many clinicians do it, but many people are familiar with the oral glucose tolerance test. And that's where you have a certain amount of glucose and they measure your blood sugar before having it 30, 60, 90, 120 minutes after. And they look to see a sort of a normal response. And the idea is at the beginning, your baseline, your pre-glucose consumption blood sugar is, is fairly similar to the two-hour mark. The two-hour mark is expected to be a bit higher. 
but that you peak and that you come back down to within a relatively normal range, you know, within 90 to 120 minutes. And that's what we're looking at. So we call it the postprandial, the after the, the meal blood sugar level. Um, now, if you're a diabetic, you are your blood sugar level is going to go way up and it's going to stay up for a very long period of time. So if you were to have something you know, some cake or some ice cream or the potato um, and just have it on its own, then in a diabetic, we would see the glucose go way up and then take hours before it starts to come back down. And in a non-diabetic, we would see their sugar goes up in response to the sugar consumed, but then within that 90 to 120 minutes comes back down to a more normal range. And so we call it the, the glucose response curve. So, you know, the def definition to us is if you can have a normal glucose response as a non-diabetic would to having that the same food. So if I were to have, you know, kitty cup with ice cream versus, a, you know, a, a non-diabetic, someone who had never been diagnosed with diabetes, unlike myself, um, when we eat, we'd expect to have the, the same, same curve rather than I have that little bit of ice cream and my blood sugar levels stay high for four to six hours. That within, you know, about 90 minutes, 120 minutes, I, my blood sugar levels are back down into a normal range. And then similarly, uh, if you're looking at the craft test and the insulin, you would experience sort of a, the, a similar curve, a normal curve where your, your two hour insulin is relatively on par with baseline and that those are within normal ranges. So, you know, for us, and you know, like even for, for me, I started out and I would have that ice cream, that bit of ice cream, and my sugars would stay high to four to six hours. And then my hemoglobin A1C, um, which is sort of the 120-day range of your blood sugar levels, was in that diabetic zone uh, at, at the time. But now, you know, I'm 10 years out. And my hemoglobin A1C has been way under that, around 4.7, 4.8%, uh, which is definitely not in that diabetic range. We, for optimal, we like it to be less than 5.2, and then 5.2 to, you know, about 5.6 is uh, maybe start thinking about <laughs> doing some interventions. We, mm -hmm. we don't want the damage to start. And then 5.6 and so on, we start, you know, labeling people as pre-diabetes and then borderline diabetes from 6 to 6.4, and then four full-blown diabetes after that. Um, so the the marker is, um, the my glucose or my A1C marker is fine. And these periodic periods of time where I do intentionally include uh, carbohydrates in larger quantities and carb cycle, I have the same response. I have a completely normal response. So now 10 years out, I still maintain a normal response. I might have an even more normal response than a lot of people who have never been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And that's what we look for in our patients or the people that we're, we're working with is that normal glucose response. And many of them can get a more normal glucose response uh, compared to a lot of people out there who have never been diagnosed with diabetes in the first place. So it, it what's really kind of neat though is we started in June of 2012 uh, and I started in Canada and um, 
diabetes reversal is just so foreign. And now it's, you know, decades later, and I'm living in San Francisco, and I actually had a medical appointment at Stanford University, not that long ago, and the doctor was just taking my medical history. And she said, are, are you or have you ever been a diabetic? And I asked her to sort of explain the second half of her statement. She said, well, nowadays, you know, we know that there are interventions that can reverse diabetes. So, uh, and I thought, oh, this is so cool because, you know, she didn't really know a whole lot about fasting. She, you know, we started talking afterwards, obviously, after I explained my medical history. Um, she's like, I hear it's trendy. I don't really know about it. I try to eat paleo. <laughs> like, that was about it. But she's like, we, you know, it's now becoming common knowledge that type 2 diabetes is something that can be reversed in certain circumstances, is what she said. So it's nice to see sort of mainstream. I would say she was definitely a full mainstream uh, physician in, in Western medicine, um, not integrative, not functional by any stretch of the imagination. But it's really cool to see this stuff sort of stretch out. Um, so we're, we've been able to, you know, really work with patients. And typically, we do therapeutic fasting in order to reverse type 2 diabetes. And to us, therapeutic fasting is more of an alternate daily approach or a three time a week approach, where you would do a full day of fasting. Um, so that typically ranges from 24 to 42 hours of fasting done you three times a week. So a 24 hour fast, you fast say from dinner tonight to dinner tomorrow. So, you know, I am eating tomorrow, but I'm just fasting breakfast and lunch, but I'll have dinner. Uh, and then a 36 hour fast would be just fasting straight through dinner and then breaking my fast the following morning. So today I would eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Tomorrow I'd fast. And then the following day I'd have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So it's just one whole clean day plus a sleep of not fasting or of not eating, but fasting. And then a lot of people just don't like eating breakfast, uh, especially diabetics whose blood sugar levels are already elevated in the morning due to the dawn mm -hmm. phenomenon. They'd rather burn it off than add more fuel to the fire. So they'll end up not breaking their fast until lunchtime. And, you know, we, we think about type 2 diabetes, it's a chronic, or it's a serious condition. It's not, it doesn't need to be a chronic progressive condition, but it's a serious condition. So fasting is not a diet. Um, you know, it's not, it's not like the latest pair of shoes that are on uh, trend for the season. It is a therapeutic approach to treating diabetes. It's the alternative to what people are are using to treat their diabetes. So just like someone who um, has cancer would show up to their treatments for chemotherapy or radiation, we expect our, our participants to show up for their fasting days, like they're showing up for their therapeutic treatments. And so these individuals, typically, it, you know, we're quite intensive for about six months, so then we're able to scale back, but they'll do alternate daily fasting or three times a week, they show up for their diabetes treatment, which is a fasting day. Um, and, you know, the great thing with fasting is that they can do it anywhere. 
So if they can still travel, you know, you're not tied to being home and going to a facility and having to do it. You don't have to go to a special center to do it. You can do it from anywhere. It doesn't cost you anything. You feel better after rather than feeling worse after. So there's so much, so many more positive benefits of the fasting therapy compared to other therapies. Uh, and you can have the flexibility. You could fast Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, or Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, or you know Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, like you can really fit it into your lifestyle. So it doesn't need to impact your lifestyle, but you still have to treat it as a therapeutic approach. It's just not a diet or a lifestyle that you do periodically. You need to treat it as a therapy and you need to do so for about six months. And if you do that, you know, you can really eradicate years worth of disease. Wow. Sounds really amazing. Uh, yeah, you kind of uh, answered my next two questions too, <laughs> which, but yeah, I mean, that sounds, sounds really great. Um, I was going to ask about you earlier, you mentioned like the alternate day fasting and now you talked about, um, kind of as a weekly schedule because it's similar, you know, if you did it literally every other day, then of course it would end up being different on different weeks, but instead you could just do Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or something else that kind of fits into your schedule. But, uh, as you pointed out at the end, to be consistent so that you get the therapeutic benefit, especially if you have years of disease, as you said, um, somebody who has type 2 diabetes or, you know, many, many, many people in the United States that don't even know it, but they're on their way to having diabetes. And I say the United States, I mean, lots of other places too, but that's where I live and where you now live, I guess. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that's, that's, uh, quite interesting to hear about what your experiences have been like. And I think it should be really encouraging, especially for anyone with diabetes or high blood sugar who is listening to this. So, and you, and you, one of my other questions was going to be like, oh, about how long does it take to kind of, you know, really see the results? And you said, if you stick with it for six months, there's a good chance you're going to see really positive results is kind of what I'm gathering from, from what you said there. And about six, after about six months, um, I wouldn't say that's that you're fully reversed in, in six months, <laughs> okay. but in six, six months, you can really clean up the system in the sense of restoring a significant amount of insulin sensitivity. Um, so really curing a lot of the insulin resistance, coming off the medications, reducing a lot of the inflammation. Like within six months, you can almost feel like an entirely different person. Mm -hmm. It's wild. You know, I always joke that I'm Megan, I'm pretty I'm in a boardroom or, you know, on a night out with friends. I'm very much Megan. I have one kind of personality. I'm just happy, go lucky Canadian lady. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I've had like 10 different metabolic personalities and each one of mm. them has different nutrient requirements, needs different fasting protocols, needs different types of physical activity. Um, but I've just healed so much. So, you know, you can go from, you can become an entirely different metabolic person in six months, but then there's still healing that has to happen after that. So on paper, you can get awesome labs. You can feel like a new person. You can be off a bunch of medications, but then usually at that six month mark, you know, we scale things down a bit, but we still say on top of it, we, you know, it's a more mild therapeutic approach. Uh, that we follow people with for about another six to 12 months. And then usually like that 12 to 18 month mark, um, you know, people are really seeing kind of wild transformations. Uh, Jason and I, our very first patient we asked to do a seven day fast. She literally came into the office and said, every 
three months, I see my endocrinologist and he gives me another 10 units of insulin and I gain another 10 pounds. Um, she was going blind. She knew her, her blood sugars were out of control. She didn't know what to do. She said, tell me what to do. And Jason said, hey, try a seven day fast. Anyway, she ended up going for 21 days. It was remarkable. She came off all of her insulin, had incredible blood sugar levels. So she, uh, after that 21 days, she did alternate daily fasting. Um, her and her husband did it together. They were tired. So they just, you know, they did true uh, ADF, alternate daily fasting protocols, because that just worked for them. And they planned their life around it. And they were really great about their diet. So about you know, several months in, they went out to celebrate an anniversary of theirs and they had dessert and she checked her blood glucose level and it was high. Like it was high a couple of hours after having that dessert and she just kind of broke down. She said, but my A1C is perfect. My sugars regularly are perfect. I'm off of all these medications. I've lost almost a hundred pounds like this. Like how can this be um and so she came back and was just devastated we said you got to hang in there like it takes 10 to 15 years to develop diabetes so there's 10 to 15 years worth of damage that accumulates and then it is going to take a while and 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 she had been on insulin for 34 years at that time when we met her in clinic so he said just just hang in there there's deeper healing so then another several months went by and then there was a big birthday and they went out and she had a dessert and her husband said, please, please, please do not check your blood sugar levels. Do not ruin the, <laughs> ruin the night. But she still did. And she had a normal glucose response. So, you know, we, in, in her initial, it was, it was seven and a half months from the time she started fasting till that first dessert incident. So it was just a shy of eight months. She had come up all these medications. She had great blood sugars. She had great labs. She felt fantastic. She had lost tons of weight, but there was still some cellular healing that needed to happen. Mm -hmm. Now in chatting with her, okay, so her, her whole journey was about a year and a half when all was said and done and she was getting these normal glucose responses to these larger episodes of sugar. But, you know, 10 to 15 years to develop diabetes and then having diabetes and then being on insulin for 34 years. I mean, you're looking at nearly sort of 40 years worth of diabetes and in 18 months, you know, it's gone. Um, and you're having this normal glucose response when you do eat these foods. And I think that's pretty cool. So it does, it does take, you get, all, you, it, everything looks really great on paper at this first six months, but then you got to hang out there for a little bit. But within, I mean, her story, you know, we're looking at over 40 years from when she started to develop diabetes to just 18 months. I mean, that's, uh, that's hugely powerful. The, the therapeutic treatment that she implemented. Yeah, when you zoom out and kind of look at the big picture, because of course people people always want these like quick results with things, especially in this modern age. But when you when you zoom out and think of it, yeah, like decades of problems that in a year or two have been pretty much fixed, and maybe not a hundred percent, and maybe it'll never be a hundred percent. It reminds me of I was reading this book about low back pain or rehabbing low back problems. And the author kind of pointed out like, yeah, you'll probably get to this point where you're pretty normal. You can function pretty normally, but you'll probably still need to do a little extra maintenance 
uh, than someone who never had those problems to begin with. And I'm sure it's kind of true for diabetes too. So you can get to where you're pretty normal, but you probably need to do a little more maintenance than someone who's never been there before, perhaps, I guess you could say. Uh, This is the thing. If you go back to doing what you did to develop the diabetes, you can redevelop it. You know, if you eat these highly refined or processed foods and you go back to eating all of the time, I mean, that's what led to the development of insulin resistance, which is the root cause of diabetes in the first place or type 2 diabetes. So anybody can do that. Anybody. Jason Fong always says, I can make anybody diabetic. I just have to give them (laughs) insulin and give it to them often enough. Um, And so if you go back to the, you know, that. If you go back to doing that, I mean, in in a period of time, you you can redevelop it. So, you know, people ask, do I have to fast for life? And it's just like, no, like you you don't have to do this crazy fasting for life, but you need to be mindful of how often that you're eating. And we eat a ton in the Ramos household. We've had, my husband and I have had such great success with fasting. We eat a ton, but we don't graze and we don't snack. We eat meals. Uh, And it's hard to eat meals in today's modern age. And Mm -hmm. we have to tag tag team it and do food prep and support each other to make sure that we're staying, staying with meals. But we really enjoy food. And as a woman, I'm 37 years old. I grew up being dragged to Weight Watchers meetings with great aunts and grandmas. And, um, you know, I thought I was just destined for this life where I was always going to be in deprivation and couldn't enjoy food and always having to count, count, count. And I so like I when I was young, I had such this negative relationship with food as a result. And now I have such a great relationship with food. I love eating and I love eating things that make me feel good. And by doing so, I get these natural periods of fasting that helps balance things out. And, you know, and it's been a decade and I've maintained diabetes free, PCOS free, fatty liver free. um, And I've maintained over an 80 pound weight loss uh, pandemic included. I did gain a few pounds at first um, being uh, a little too sedentary, but uh, still it's, it's been pretty remarkable. So I now like I am in control and uh, it's, it's pretty awesome. And I, I so enjoy eating. Um, and I, I think that this is a type of freedom that not many people know can exist, that you can truly learn to love food and enjoy it. And if you eat the right things and the right timing, um, not only do you feel great uh, emotionally, physically, um, but you're also going to be extremely healthy. Yeah, yeah. And and by the way, it's been really powerful to hear about not only your some of your part, at least part of your personal experience with diabetes, but all these patients that you've worked with and everything. And, and, uh, you know, I had some more questions written down. I know we're not going to get to all of them just because, you know, like we're, uh, only maybe have about 10 more minutes, but, um, so hopefully we can bring you back on in the future sometime down the road. But, uh, you were talking towards the end there about, um, not snacking, not grazing, having good proper meals. Um, I know that's a struggle for a lot of people for many reasons. Maybe it's because everybody's so busy, like they're always packing their schedule so full with different things. And then they don't feel like they have time to cook. And then people want to eat out. And I was thinking recently about how when you eat at restaurants, it's almost impossible to eat healthy. 
Um, it's, it's, it's possible, but it's almost, it's like 99% of the time there's going to be something about it. That's not really great. Um, and so if people are eating out all the time or if they're just wanting to buy all these pre-cooked meals or I don't know, um, I guess maybe this is a good segue into a modified version of one of my other questions, which is, I was going to ask a little bit about kind of how you help people in a family setting to kind of you know, improve their health or fit fasting into their lifestyle or just to, you know, whatever it is to just kind of start working towards a more healthy lifestyle because of some of the challenges that come in a family setting. Yeah, so definitely, um, uh, especially parents, it, it can it can be tough because you have uh, very tiny humans that you definitely don't want to be firing up um, the stovetop or, you know, taking hot stuff in and out of the oven and, and they need to eat. Um, you know, mm-hmm. eating uh, invokes growth, and in little humans, you want them to grow into proper size humans, <laughs> so they they do need to grow. So parents struggle a lot for with a few reasons. So they've got to cook on their fasting days, um, do food prep, and especially parents of younger kids who have karate practice, soccer practice, swim, dance, all these activities activities, um, you know, it, it's not always reasonable to say, hey, do all of your food prep on an eating day. So some of the hacks is, well, one, if you can swing it, eating days are great days to do food prep, or just sort of doubling up um, on your eating day. So if you know that you are going to be fasting, say, Tuesday, um, but on Monday you're cooking, then make extra. So Tuesday people are having leftovers. And mm-hmm. so many parents actually are had like had cooks at home. They actually prefer to do two forty eight hour fasts a week as their therapeutic protocol because then they're only missing dinner with their family twice a week. And it's only two times a week that their family might be eating leftovers. So mm-hmm. there's not a whole lot complaining um, from everybody at home twice a week leftovers is no big deal in the scheme of seven nights uh, of dinner. And it's only mm-hmm. two times a week that you're not, you know, or you're sh- trying to sit there while they're eating dinner or you're staying away from them while they're eating dinner. So the two forty eights is a really big a really popular strategy for those with families. But one thing that works well in general is just doing meal prep in the morning time, fasting day or eating day, because our appetite really just isn't there in the morning time. I do almost all of my food prep throughout the week in the mornings, fasting day or eating day, you know, Mm -hmm. really getting it in. On the weekend, my husband definitely helps. On the weekdays, we've got, he's got a crazy commute into work. His days are long and I work from home. So I tend to take it on and morning times. I'm just there. I'm there with my cup of green tea in the morning time. My appetite's not there. I'm not, you know, looking to pick up the food. So I can just do all of the food prep for whatever I need, whether I'm breaking my fast later that day or then the following day. Um, but morning times are golden. So we'll usually encourage, you know, parents, if you can wake up, you know, half an hour early, do that food prep in the morning time when the appetite's non-existent. So many people report that just working for them. Um, the, the kids are still in bed and the appetite's not there. So they're not snacking or grazing as they're doing that food prep anyways. So those are big things. Um, parents uh, or just family members in general that are trying to fast 
at the table. And there's a few reasons why this might be uncomfortable for, for people. You as a faster might be struggling while everybody else around you is eating and you're mm-hmm. not eating. Or um, a lot of parents, you know, they'll worry about mixed messages to children and eating and especially those with younger daughters uh, and body image issues don't necessarily are worried about disordered eating um, patterns. So what we typically recommend is, you know, mom or dad or whoever at home is fasting, you know, take a bowl and add in some bone broth or low carb vegetable broth. You could even chop up some fresh parsley, um, sprinkle it with salt and pepper, take a spoon, and then it's like mom and dad or mom's having her special soup for the night. Uh, mm-hmm. So it, it that strategy works really well because you, the faster, you're eating from a bowl with a spoon. So and you're engaging in conversation. It almost tricks your brain to think you're doing the same thing as everybody else. So you kind of get out of this mental state where perhaps you might be feeling deprived and then everybody else around you just sees you eating with a spoon from a bowl. So they think you're participating too. Um, You're just eating something different than what they're eating. And that sort of calms a lot of the concerns that happen with an individual trying to fast at a a mealtime. And then also just really sort of bringing back those meals, really trying to get the family off of eating at the couch or eating at their desk or eating at a regular times, bringing mm-hmm. back sort of that, that family dinner, or at least on the nights um, that uh, you are also, you know, eating anyways. So if mm-hmm. you have kids and teenagers and they're busy, okay, but you know, if, uh, if you're eating Tuesday, Friday night, you know, making sure those are nights at home that everybody's participating in. Yeah, those are some some golden tips right there that um, I've heard some of those before, but not all of them. So yeah, finding the right schedule. You mentioned like the two 48-hour fast where you don't have to skip as many dinners. Doing food prep in the morning. That's a really interesting one. And to be honest, I don't do a lot of food prep, but I'm just like a single person living alone. So I can kind of just whip stuff up or whatever uh, when I need to. But uh, and I don't have to worry about like the family dinner unless I'm visiting family or something. Uh, but uh, but yeah, the food prep in the morning, because I certainly have noticed like it's just so much easier to feel in control with food in the morning versus the evening. So if it's like if you're handling all this food in the evening, that could be kind of rough. Um, so that sounds like a great tip. I like the idea about the broth at the dinner. You know, if you want to have just eat, quote unquote, eat something different. Um, so you're still participating in the meal with the family. And then, yeah, like really focusing on making it a, a family event, kind of, especially when you are <laughs> not fasting and when you're when you're eating with them. Those are some great tips. Um, so we'll have to save some of the other stuff for next time, <laughs> whenever that may be. Uh, but uh, but maybe maybe I can squeeze in one just kind of rapid fire thing um, before we wrap up. Um, and I guess that would be if you had just a small number of tips for beginners or for people who think it's just seems overwhelming and they don't feel like they can even get started. Um, if you had just a small number of things, maybe like three things, what would be like the first three things you would want to tell people about how to be successful or how to like overcome the mental obstacle of, you know, using fasting? Yeah. So the, the first thing is just don't snack. It really doesn't matter how many meals you're eating a day, one, two, or three. Um, just don't snack between meals. So if you're brand new to fasting, not sure where to start, or you really want to take things slow, cut out snacks. 
people actually find it easier to cut out meals than to cut out snacks. And it's the snack mm. snacking is almost worse uh, in many factors because the foods that we typically snack on are processed and refined versus a meal sort of being more real whole, whole foods, uh, especially for cooking at home. So mm. just don't snack just cut it out. Uh, it doesn't mean, even if they're healthy foods, it doesn't mean that you couldn't have those nuts or those olives or that cheese. Just have it with your meals instead. Uh, so I'm not necessarily telling people to eat less, um, just eat less often. That's the best place to start. And then one of the best things you can do is every morning have a pinch of salt in your glass of water. This can really help curb afternoon hunger especially and help kill a lot of that snacking that happens so many people when they um try to fast or try to go low carb um they wait till they don't feel well to start hydrating properly but start your day off hydrated properly uh and hydration isn't just water it's water and electrolytes and you know the gateway keeper of all of those electrolytes is sodium so just water with a pinch of salt i'm talking like a quarter of a teaspoon nothing wild um that can make a huge difference in your appetite later on throughout the day so hydrating early and even if you just do it in the morning it's still hugely impactful uh and then this the the third thing that I would recommend is just really trying to eat earlier in the evening. Uh, if, if dinner is a meal that you are going to continue have, just try to uh, have it sooner when you get home. This way you avoid snacking after work or after school um, when you get home and you're having that satiating meal earlier on and it will allow for more time for digestion before you go to bed. You know, we really want to make sure we've done the bulk of digestion before we go to sleep. It's good. It helps us keep our blood glucose down and our insulin down, but it also will promote more rest while we're sleeping. So when we're, when we're sleeping, we're actually able to rest and restore rather than just digesting the whole time. So it will reduce the overall stress load on our body quite significantly, even if it's only by 30 minutes. Like even if you can only move dinner from 7.30 to 7, that is still really profound. So trying to get that last meal of the day, move it up earlier on uh, as early as you can comfortably will have a really big difference your results. Wow. Yeah. Those sound like some really good tips. Uh, so I've talked about a couple of those things and you, you kind of uh, inspired me to talk about, to really focus on the not snacking part as a first step. Cause it really makes a lot of sense to me. Once I think about it, it's just kind of an easier, not that it's easy to do, but it's an easier concept and a, a good first step to just kind of get used to going a little while without food sometimes. <laughs> so Thanks a lot for being here. I know I know we got to let you go in a second um, in a, or in a moment, but I really appreciate your time because you have so much valuable information to share. And of course, if if a listener just can't get enough and they want want to find more, they they could start by reading your book, for example, Life in the Fasting Lane. I know you've got the the new podcast. Um, it's called the Fasting Method Podcast, I believe. And then your website yeah. is thefastingmethod.com. Is there anything else that you want to uh, kind of you know, let people know about if they wanted to find you and get more information from you? 
Yeah, you can head over to our website. Uh, or, well, you just said it, fastlymethod.com. You'll find YouTube um, resources, podcast resources, social media, and you'll, uh, you can learn about our various programs. Um, and then we have a massive repository of blog posts that are all free and available to anybody. Um, you can search. Uh, so depending on what you're interested in, diabetes, PCOS, weight loss, sugar, nutrition, insulin, you can search and narrow it down and there's tons and tons of free resources there. Great. Yeah. And and one thing people hopefully realize is that the resources that you have are based on experience and what really works in the real world. Because as we said, as I mentioned at the beginning, you've worked with over 20,000 patients. So we know this information is reliable. So so yeah, I guess they could start by going to your website, thefastingmethod.com, and and that'll link out to a bunch of other things. They can go from there. Yeah, every, every, everything's linked from there. <laughs> Sounds good. So yeah, um, I better wrap this up. But thanks again for being here. I think I think it turned out well. I think it'll be really useful for the listeners. Thank you, Ben. I appreciate it. And I appreciate all of your support. And everybody's listening today. Happy fasting. <laughs> yeah, happy <laughs> fasting. The Fasting Well podcast is not medical advice and does not replace the need to consult with your own medical providers.